So this morning, thank you, Emily. Uh, this morning we're looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Uh, Mark 9, 2 through 13. It is Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, so we're looking at that story. Uh, Mark 9, 2 through 13. You'll find the words on the screen or behind me on the screen. Uh, before we read it, let's pray together. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you again. with a, a sense of humility as we, as we open this book. And we pray, God, that you would speak to us through this word. Uh, come, Holy Spirit, and please do what you do. Help us to hear your voice. And in some way or another, God, we ask that that you would change us and transform us and make us new. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 2. Hear these words. After six days. Six days. After what? We'll get there. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say couldn't find the words. They were so frightened. Then a, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. This is strange. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. We will go that far. So many questions. And again, I feel like I say this like every week. Like we can't get to them all. Um, but what an interesting story, right? I mean, it's almost as if Mark is, is struggling to come up with the words that would adequately describe the experience that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus up on that mountain. I mean, he even says, Peter didn't know what to say. Peter couldn't find the words. And my guess is that when Mark first heard this story, it was like there was a struggle there, trying to, to talk about exactly what this experience was like. How do you adequately, 
How do you adequately talk about an experience of the divine that was that explosive and that amazing? We'll get to that. But what I'm interested in first is the first part of verse 2, after six days, after six days, six days, after what? Why is Mark telling us after six days? What were those six days like? We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. So we sort of have to think about it. We have to imagine ourselves with the disciples and trying to figure out what were they going through at this moment before they went up the mountain with Jesus. So here's what happened uh, six days earlier. So Jesus' closest friends, some of his closest followers, Uh, had this deep and profound experience where they realized that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And this was a very big deal to them. Like Jesus was going to be a king, a king. And that meant something very particular to them, very specific. That means he was going to be the king of Israel and he was going to restore Israel to its glory. right? And he was going to help sort of bring them out from underneath Roman occupation, right? So this was a big deal. This was a a big moment for them. He's going to be a king. And then Jesus says something like this. By the way, I'm about to be rejected by my own people. I'm going to suffer many things in my own people. Well, they're going to murder me. I'm going to die. They just realized he's going to be a king, Like, he's going to do all the things that the king is supposed to do. And then he says, no, actually, I'm I'm going to die. Right now, the disciples are all confused by this. If you go back and read this story, especially Peter, there's a little incident he has with Jesus. It's not too cool. But then Jesus goes on to explain a little bit further. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, he or she must take up their cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you, if you lose your life, if you give away your life for me and what God is up to in the world, you will live the most extraordinary kind of life. You must be willing to voluntarily suffer to give yourself away. If you give yourself away, oh, you will have the most extraordinary kind of life after six days. Now, that's what happened, and then there's six days in between, and I have to imagine those six days must have been filled with all sorts of questions and confusing conversations. Their dear friend just told them he's going to die very soon. His own people are going to reject them, and they're going to end up murdering him. I imagine they were scared. They were frightened. They were nervous. They were confused. None of this made any kind of sense. How were they going to watch their good friends suffer and die? What was their life going to be like? Did this whole movement that Jesus seemed to have started, was it just going to die with him? Like all kinds of confusing questions and conversations for six whole days. And then Jesus brings them up on this mountain, and they have another deep, profound experience of the divine in and through and with Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus is communicating to them. So they've had like a whole week of confusion and 
scared time and they don't know what's next and all kinds of questions and they're not getting answered and they're being called to give themselves away and they're hearing that they have to suffer and then Jesus brings them up this mountain. They have this profound, deep experience with the divine. It's almost as if Jesus is communicating with them, yes, this is going to be hard. Yes, there will be suffering, but no matter how hard life gets, no matter how much suffering you have to endure, no matter how messy and confusing and dirty and weird things get, God is on your side. I will be with you, watching over you. Oh, for them, it must have been like, wow. Mind-blowing experience up on that mountain, right? Now, I imagine that they never would have imagined that they would have had this kind of mountaintop experiences, experience with Jesus up on that mountain. I mean, one minute they're winding their way up a rocky mountain to spend time with Jesus alone. Now, they had to be feeling pretty good about themselves, right? Jesus had singled the three of them out. He had chosen them. And then the next minute, clouds sort of surround their little expedition, and Jesus is transformed before their very eyes. His face is shining like the sun, and his clothes are brilliant white. And then a voice comes from a cloud and said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Seriously, how do you take all of that in? How do you understand an experience of the divine like that? How do you begin to understand it? How do you begin to describe it? Now, I'm guessing that many of us have had experiences sort of like that. We even have this phrase we use. I've had a mountaintop experience. It's those experiences where you experience something so deep and so profound that you hardly have words for it. Like there's something bigger and bolder and more meaningful going on just underneath the surface. You know what I'm talking about. It's the day your first child was born. You're like, oh, there's something more happening here. It's, it's the day you walked towards your groom or you, walked your bride, you watched your bride walk down the aisle towards you. It's the, it's the time where you stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon. You're like, Poof. or it's when you're up in the mountains of Colorado and it's nighttime and you're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea there were that many stars. And you're feeling this small, but you feel like you're a part of something much, much bigger than yourselves. It's, it's those times when you experience something deep in your heart, something more real, something more authentic than you've ever experienced before. And at the very core of your being, something or someone is, is behind it all and made it all, is in charge of it all, and somehow you're connected with that one. How do we make sense of those experiences? Have you had experiences like that where you're like, I'm overwhelmed right now? How do we make sense of them? Because here's the thing, there's something I think deep down inside of each of us that tells us that those things have to mean something. Like there's something going on here. What does it mean? Or why do we have experiences like that? Or why do we find ourselves caught up in experiences like that? They feel like a gift, like they're given to us. Why are these experiences given to us? Well, I think those experiences always point to something beyond the experience itself. Like it's not 
just the experience. It's, it's what the experience is pointing to. I mean, we may not ever get the full sort of picture of that something beyond, but at least for a moment, we get like a little glimpse. It's almost as if in that moment, you're in a pitch black room and somebody turns on a flashlight for a brief moment and you see something and then it's gone. So maybe if we sort of figure out what this experience for the disciples pointed to, maybe we can go back and re-enter those experiences that we've had and maybe understand them a little bit more deeply. So I want to say a few things. The first thing is this. I think it's a no-brainer, but it actually might be the most significant thing. So let's think about the story again. All of a sudden, they're walking up an ordinary mountain that's an ordinary trail. It's very ordinary. And then suddenly, Jesus starts shining like the sun and talking with Moses and Elijah, who've been dead for hundreds of years. And if that weren't enough, a bright cloud appears and God's voice speaks out of it. And it was overwhelming. It was an overwhelming experience of God that the disciples had never had before. And these sorts of experiences, I think, always point to a God that is greater than we can ever fully experience. It's a good thing, too, I think, because I think sometimes we religious people, we could use a good dose of the overwhelmingness of God. Because sometimes I think we get a little too comfortable. And I think sometimes God feels the need to let us know that God is God and we are not. Because we like to pin God down. We like to define God. We like to, we like to almost put put barriers around God so that we can feel like, oh, if we, if we get this right, then my life feels better and more safe and good. But, but then we have experiences like this, and it's like, nah, man, you're just scratching the surface. I am so, there's so much more going on here than you could ever understand. Like this God that we have come to know ultimately remains unknowable, at least for now. I think my dad, a few months ago, maybe it was more, I didn't go back and look, but I, he, he shared a, a quote, and I'm gonna, I think he did. Dad, you're gonna, he's watching. You'll have to tell me later if he did. Um, it's a quote by Annie Dillard, and it just, it's amazing, and it captures this idea perfectly, so I'm gonna share it with you too. So why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Sometimes you feel that way, don't you? Sometimes I feel that way. Like, what do we expect when we come here? She says, why do we people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I don't find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. The, the ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Y'all, we should be wearing crash helmets. 
Are we aware of the power we so blithely invoke? And for the disciples, they get this experience of the divine, and they're frightened. They don't know what to say. He has no words, right? And then Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody about this experience. Don't tell anyone. I like this part of this story. I like it. I like it a lot. Jesus says, don't talk about this experience. Like this experience that is so big and bold and beautiful, this experience of the divine. And Jesus says, don't talk about it. Why? Why not? I think sometimes it's better if we just leave these experiences alone. I think sometimes the the best thing for us to do is to just sit. Like the psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. Maybe that's part of the point, is just to know that we're deeply connected to the one who made it all the one who's in charge of it all. Because sometimes talking about experiences like this, can, it just doesn't seem to help. In fact, sometimes I feel like talking about these deep experiences, these profound experiences of the divine, does the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. We're trying to extend the moment. We're trying to memorialize it. We're trying to make sure that we maybe can, can experience again. It's like we're, we're building shelters to make it last longer. But sometimes when we use words, it just tends to trivialize these experiences. I mean, try to, if you have kids, try to, try to just explain what it was like experiencing the birth of your child. Try to explain what it felt like to walk down the aisle towards your groom at the altar. Or try to use words to adequately describe what it was like watching your bride walk towards you. Try, try adequately describing the, less, the last holy moments, the last holy conversation you had with a loved one before they finally moved on into the into the presence of God forever. I mean, when you try, the words just don't come out right. When you try, you're at a loss. You can never really, you can never really come up with the right words to adequately describe it. And so maybe it's better to just stop and be quiet and know that God is a mystery and that God is bigger and more real and more authentic and more overwhelming than we could ever ever understand. So think about those moments. Because I think those moments also do something else. I think those moments, I think they change us. I think they're transformative. And I think they actually prepare us to live differently in the world. Like I think these moments really do point to a different way of living as we make our way in this world that is so often confusing and messy. Think about it. Up on a mountain, you see things differently, right? You see things totally different, differently. From that vantage point, 
you begin to see the world in a different way. In a sense, you almost get a God's eye view of things. Right? And for Jesus and his friends, for Jesus' his friends, they didn't then come down the mountain all alone. Jesus came with them. They came down the mountain together to make their way together in a world that is often messy and confusing. And I think what's great about this story is what happens next. Right? What's great about this story is what Jesus' friends see when they get down the mountain and into the valley below. They see the very same power that they experienced up on that mountain. They see that power made visible in another way as Jesus heals a helpless little boy who has an unclean spirit. Like up on the mountain, down in the world, it doesn't matter. God's power is everywhere, everywhere available. These mountaintop, I think these mountaintop experiences remind us that there's a whole lot more going on down in the valley in everyday life than we're often aware of. And maybe if we just paid a little more attention, got tuned in to the divine by those sort of experience, we'd be able to pay attention and see it happening, experience it, live in it, through it, and with it in the everyday. So when I was a, a pastor in Michigan, I took, a, I took a trip to India. And I've talked a little bit about it before, but there are many points on that trip where it just wound up giving me these mountaintop experiences, not literally on mountaintops, but these experiences of the divine that was just really profound. And I could try to describe to you what it was like, but I just told you it's better not to, so I'm not going to because I couldn't find the words to do it anyway. So the best thing I can say about that is that God is alive and well and moves in ways that we can hardly describe. Like I saw things and experienced things there that I can never really speak about or talk about. I saw God move among a forgotten people in an unknown land. I mean, sometimes I caught myself doing it about three weeks ago. We've got this globe in our house sitting on one of our bookshelves, and I'll spin the thing around, and I'll find India. And I'll look at just how far away that is from here, literally the other side of the planet. And I'll think about how I saw God move among a forgotten people in an unknown land all the way on the other side of the world. And I remember thinking back then as I was experiencing it and thinking now that if God can do something there, well, then there's no place that's out of the reach of the divine. Like there's no possible way you can look at the world the same way you used to. And I think for me, I wound up not looking anymore for the movements of God in the big, the magnificent, the, the ways we like to see and experience on a mountaintop. We all crave these experiences. We want them. But now you're a little more attuned to, to the movements of God in the seemingly small, seemingly insignificant ways, like a helpless little unnamed boy being freed from an unclean spirit in some unknown little house 
right? Like a neighbor, helping a neighbor, or like someone bringing to a meal, bringing a meal to a friend or an acquaintance after they get released from the hospital, or like someone coming over and cleaning your house after you've been sick for a while or because you're grieving. Because I think these mountaintop experiences, they change us, they transform us, they point to a different way of living in the world. I want to point one last thing out. This particular mountain point, mountaintop, points to a, a second mountaintop in the story that Mark is telling. So Mark's doing a little foreshadowing here, and he's really good at it. So here's the deal. Jesus could have stayed up on top of this first mountaintop in all his glory. He could have claimed it for what it was, big and bold and beautiful and magnificent, but he did not. No, he came down the first mountain on purpose in order to head toward the second mountain. And the second mountain isn't as big as this first mountain. In fact, it's more of a, it's more of a hill, really. But what happens there is every bit as glorious and every bit as real and awesome as what happens on that first mountain. The second mountain, too, reveals just how big and real and awesome God really is and also has a way of transforming us. And on the second mountain, Jesus isn't dressed in shining clothes and he isn't shining like the sun, but He's covered in blood and sweat. He isn't flanked by two prophets, but by two thieves. His body broken, his blood poured out. And there, on that hill, hanging on that cross, giving his life away, he again points to a different way of living a life of sacrifice, a life of generosity, a life of grace, a life of self-giving love. That's where the life of Jesus is headed in this story. After we read about him on the mountaintop, that's where his story is going, and that's where our lives are headed too. But only if we're willing. Let's pray.